This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 6, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley recently detailed some reasons that might provide the president with some cover should he decide to remove the U.S. from the Iran nuclear deal. But what happens after that? Cato Research Fellow Emma Asford says many of the arguments Haley presented are disingenuous. Uh, U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley gave a speech at the American Enterprise Institute where she talked about the Iran deal, uh, sort of what compliance looks like for for Iran and and to what extent the United States uh, should or should not uh, remain in the deal. And uh, she makes sort of a, a distinction here to say that we're not actually, by looking at merely the specific elements of the deal, and judging Iran to be compliant with those elements, that we're missing something. What does she think that we're missing, and is her assessment fair? Nikki Haley makes this really very well-put-together argument, but it's a very broad argument. And she says that, you know, the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, is just one of the elements that we should be looking at when we consider whether the deal upholds uh, U.S. national security interests. And so rather than viewing the deal as just a narrow non-proliferation agreement, that is to say it was meant to stop Iran getting a nuclear weapon, and it's actually done a good job of preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, she says, we should consider all of these other things. We should consider Iran's regional security actions. We should consider their missile tests. We should consider whether they're compliant with UN resolutions on arms trafficking, on funding of terror groups, all of these different things that certainly bear on the broader U.S.-Iranian relationship. But she says that we should be using those as a litmus test for whether the JCPOA is a good idea. All right. She uh, says in this speech, in the two years before the deal was signed, Iran's GDP actually shrunk by more than 4%. In the two years since the deal and the lifting of sanctions, Iran's GDP has grown by nearly 5%. That's a great deal for them. What we get from the deal is much less clear. So I'm not sure I really agree with that. Um, She's certainly right about the numbers. Um, Iran's GDP shrunk before the deal was signed because they were under very draconian uh, sanctions that basically cut off their oil exports to Europe. Um, Since the deal was signed, they've been allowed to export oil again. So obviously their economy has improved. Um, But what I I don't agree with Haley on is that this deal has just been a good deal for Iran. Yes, the Iranian economy has improved, but in order to get those sanctions lifted, the Iranians had to take a bunch of steps up front, including um, closing down some reactors, sending away a bunch of enriched uranium, um, allowing inspectors in and abiding by a bunch of very strict terms. And that was all done before we ever even raised the sanctions. And so it's you can make the argument that Iran got a good deal here, but I would say you could also make the argument that we got a pretty good deal. Uh, She uh, also writes, next month, President Trump will once again be called upon to declare whether he finds Iran in compliance with the terms of the deal. And this is sort of the sort of the linchpin of of the events that we expect with respect to uh, determining compliance with the deal. She says it should be noted that this requirement uh, to assess compliance does not come from the deal itself. It was created by the 
by Congress in the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, also known as the Corker-Cardin Law. That's a very important distinction to keep in mind because many people confuse the requirements of the deal with the requirements of U.S. law. What is she saying here? So this is, again, her bringing in a bunch of much broader things into our understanding of the deal. She's right that the certification requirement is required by Congress. It's it's not actually required by the deal. But what she didn't mention is that if the president doesn't certify that Iran is complying with the deal, and let's not forget that Iran actually is complying with the deal. The IAEA has confirmed that a number of times. U.S. intelligence agencies confirm that so far as we know. Um, So if the president doesn't follow through on all of that factual evidence and recertify the deal, it gets kicked back to Congress for a debate and most likely a vote on reimposing the nuclear sanctions on Iran, the end result of which would be to withdraw us from the deal. So even though Nikki Haley is basically arguing that this is about opening a debate and the president can, you know, decertify without it really impacting the deal, in practice, um, she's wrong. And and she goes into some detail here. She you know in your discussion of saying that she's bringing these broader things in, she she sets up these three pillars of what compliance is, and it's more than just the terms of the deal itself. Yeah, and that's a really. Um frankly, a very disingenuous argument to make. She brings in all of these things like regional security or missile testing that actually were specifically excluded from the deal's negotiations in the first place because we knew that we probably couldn't get to a deal if we included those. So there are no portions of the JCPOA that talk about, say, what Iran is doing in Syria. And, you know, we can think that what Iran is doing in Syria is very bad supporting the Assad regime. We can use other tools of U.S. foreign policy to deal with that if that's something that the president feels is is necessary or important. But the JCPOA was designed purely to focus on the non-proliferation problem. And so it's it's a very disingenuous argument she's making here. Is it fair to talk about things that happened, uh, you know, in in the early years of the uh, republic there? 1979, she talks about... Uh, Uh, hijackings. She talks about um, Marine Colonel Robert Higgins, a peacekeeper in in Lebanon who was kidnapped and executed. These are, you know, decades old events. Are they really relevant to what Iran is today and where they want to go? It can be very difficult for countries to move past um, historical animosities. Uh, you know, I was I was raised in the UK, and British people still feel somewhat ambivalent about Germany, even though we haven't fought a war with them in decades. Um, and so, it's not difficult to see why Nikki Haley is saying that we should consider Iran's past bad behavior, some of which was frankly truly appalling um, and violated international law in a number of ways. But the approach that the Obama administration took when they were negotiating the JCPOA is that diplomacy and dialogue tends to produce better results than none at all. And their argument was that by talking with Iran, creating this deal, um, we'd probably come to a better agreement on the nuclear issue and that would be good for U.S. security. And in the long term, by opening the doors and starting to talk to Iran and trying to start to overcome this you know, 40-year animosity, maybe we'll eventually end up at a place where relations are better 
between our countries. And if we don't do that at some point, then we will just always be stuck in this cycle of insecurity and animosity. All right. She uh, writes or says here, the biggest concern is that Iranian leaders, the same ones who in the past were caught operating a covert nuclear program at military sites, have stated publicly that they will refuse to allow IAEA inspections of their military sites. How can we know Iran is complying with the deal if inspectors are not allowed to look everywhere they should look? So again, this is a pretty disingenuous argument that she's making. I mean, it sounds great on the face of it, right? We, you know, inspectors should be allowed to look everywhere. But the fact is that the deal negotiated access for inspectors to the sites at which we knew or suspected that Iran was engaged in activities associated with this nuclear program. It's not realistic for us to say that that deal should then cover every military facility in the country. There is no way that any country would ever agree to a deal that let uh, even the IAEA or other countries come in and inspect every single military facility that they have. The deal does provide a mechanism whereby we can present the IAEA with evidence that we have found that Iran is doing something illicit in one of these military facilities. Um, And when we present them that evidence, then the IAEA can go and request an inspection. But the Trump administration hasn't done that. They haven't presented any evidence. And so the argument that she's making basically is we should jettison the deal simply because we can't find evidence that there's wrongdoing. Uh, She suggests that the penalty provisions of uh, the Iran nuclear deal are essentially uh, the reimposition of sanctions and that we might decide or she seems to indicate that the U.S. might decide that the reimposition of sanctions simply isn't enough. That's an interesting statement that she made. Um, She certainly ignores some of the the key risks involved in putting sanctions back on Iran. Um, One of those is that it will very definitely split the United States from our European allies. European states have been very clear that they do not intend to reimpose sanctions, that they may not follow, probably won't follow the US if we exit the deal. Um, The other big risk that Haley ignores is the fact that there is no real diplomatic option to get a better deal here. If the U.S. withdraws from the deal and Iran decides to resume its nuclear program, then we're back to talking about military options. And one of the big reasons why the Obama administration decided to negotiate in the first place is that there are no good military options that will end the Iranian nuclear program. They're all costly, difficult, and probably won't actually prevent a bomb. So the the hope is, uh, from our side, is that uh, Iran values steady GDP growth and an improvement of the standard of living of people in Iran to developing nuclear weapons? It's important to remember that Iran is not uh, what, what we political scientists would call a unitary actor. That is to say, the Iranian state has different groups in it that want different things, like every other state out there. Um, and in Iran, there are small groups of hardliners, um, some of them associated around the Supreme Leader, others around the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. And they do want to take more aggressive actions in the Middle East. Uh, they 
want a more hostile approach to the United States. But they're increasingly outnumbered by the bulk of the Iranian population who are either moderate or even reformist and actually want a better relationship with the outside world and the United States um, and a more pacifist approach to the region, less militaristic approach. Um, and we saw recent Iranian elections in which the incumbent president, Hassan Rouhani, the man that negotiated the JCPOA, was re-elected with a fairly large margin, in large part because the people supported the deal and wanted the prosperity that came after the deal to continue. Project forward here a little bit. If the president decides by whatever standard, by, by whatever measure, that Iran is not in compliance and begins the process of withdrawing from the deal, from uh, reimposing sanctions. What's step two after that? That's not clear. Um, so the administration, the Trump administration, is engaged in an Iran policy review. And it's not just considering the JCPOA, it's considering a bunch of other options. But there's every indication that the administration wants those options to be more assertive, more aggressive. And so that could include withdrawing from the deal, um, it could include uh, taking additional military action against Iranian proxies in places like Syria or Yemen uh, in the Middle East. It could include some kind of direct military strike on Iranian nuclear facilities or some combination of all of those. But we don't have a clear picture yet exactly what it is that the Trump administration thinks they can achieve through any of these actions um, and the exact path that they hope to follow on that. Haley's speech was very clear that they're not happy about the JCPOA, but she talked very little about what comes after. And if we're honest, I think that's because there is no good option after leaving the JCPOA. Emma Ashford is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 